I'm not sure if you've noticed, as we talked about last week, but men and women are very different. When a man says to his wife, I'm really hungry, what he really means is, could you please fix me something to eat? When a man says it's too expensive, what he really means is that you could get a brand new tool set for that. When a man says it's such a nice day, what he means is, what he means is it's too hot to do yard work. When a man says, I have a surprise, honey, what he really means is I bought something really stupid. When a man says, I have a surprise, honey, what he really means is I, I bought something really stupid. When a man says this to his wife, honey, you should consider getting a job, what he really means is you bought something that was really dumb. When a woman says, sorry, fellas, her turn. When a woman says, what are we doing for dinner? What she really means is where are you taking me out to eat because I'm not cooking tonight. When a woman says, go ahead and do what you want, what she really means is, you'll pay for it later. When a woman says, the kitchen is inconvenient, what she really means is she wants you to buy her a new house. When a woman says, do I look fat, what she really means is, tell me I'm beautiful. When a woman says, you're not listening, that means, fellas, it's too late, you're already in the doghouse. See, we are different and I may be in trouble. But God's ways of bringing two distinct people together, male and female in marriage, for the glory of his name. That's what marriage is all about. And today we come to Genesis 2 where we see really the fundamental text in all of scripture on marriage. If you look at the prophets or Jesus or Paul when they're talking about marriage or they're talking about divorce, they always come back to this passage in Genesis 2, particularly verses 18 through 25. You see a rehashing of this passage. What is marriage? Who is it for? What are the characteristics of marriage? Does marriage point to something more ultimate than itself? Those are the questions we want to answer today. Let me ask you a question. What kind of marriage do you have? Do you have an Al and Peggy Bundy kind of marriage? Do you have, do you have a uh, Ray or Deborah Barone kind of marriage? A modern family kind of marriage? Do you have a Cliff and Claire Huxtable kind of marriage. These are old shows because the marriage sitcoms were a lot better back then. Do you have a Ricky and Lucy Ricardo type of marriage or do you have a Jack and Rebecca Pearson, this is us kind of marriage? I feel sorry for Mandy Moore because Jack's like this perfect husband. What kind of marriage do you have? And listen, I'm no expert in marriage. There could be testimony that I give you today to describe all the ways in which I am not an authority or an expert on marriage. We could even have people come up front and give testimony, which we won't, about how I am not an authority or expert on marriage. My wife is sitting in the room and I am teaching about marriage. I'm no expert. I'm no authority. I struggle. We struggle. And every marriage today is tainted, right? We haven't got to Genesis 3, but we're going there. It's tainted and complicated by the brokenness of sin, the hurts from being sinned against, the unrealized expectations that you're still holding out hope for God to do in your spouse. And there are some here who just at the mention of the word marriage feel the deep pains of marriage hurt, of the brokenness of divorce. I doubt in a room like this 
that you're unstained by that, whether in your family or in your own life. Or maybe it's even a spouse that has passed. Or maybe it's the spouse that you want that God hasn't given you yet that is not lost on me as I come to a text like this in marriage. And I can tell you that God's grace is sufficient for you. He meets you right where you're at. And I can also tell you that that neighbor, that skeptic neighbor that you have, that you've been sharing Jesus with, I can promise you that he's probably looking more at your marriage and your life to see what you make of Jesus in your life than he is what you say. I want to show you the original marriage ceremony from Genesis chapter 2, and I want to leave you with four thoughts about marriage, about God's grand design for marriage that he's laid out in Genesis chapter 2 and in his words. So turn with me to Genesis chapter 2, first couple of pages of your Bible there, and we'll read 18 through 25. We're really going to hone in on verses 23 through 25, but I want to give some context from last week, so go there with me. Genesis 2, 18 through 25 in your Bibles. Let me read it. Verse 18 says this, And the Lord God said, It's not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. Whatever the man called every living creature, that's what its name was. The man gave names to all the livestock and the birds of the heavens and every beast of the field, but for Adam... There was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he, he slept, took one of his ribs and closed it in the place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man had made into a woman and brought her to the man. I love that picture. Then the man said, this is at last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Verse 24, therefore... A man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. And they, were, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Listen, there's something really unusual about this text. It's unusual. It's written by Moses, we know, from Jesus. Jesus said it's written by Moses through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And God is the narrator. But when you come to a narrative text in the Bible, what you rarely, if ever, see is explanation because it's telling a story, right? It's telling a true story, but usually the author doesn't ever stop and explain anything. It's just the story, and the pastor is left to understand the story and teach the story, but God, the narrator, stops right here, and he gives reason. It's very unusual. Do you see it in verse 23 and 4 there? Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and cling to his life. See, God is stopping and making a point here. That's an unusual thing. Go find it. I, I'm looking for places in the Bible at this point where the author stops and gives reasons and I don't see it. So I want to show you four things, four unique things here about God's grand design for marriage. First of all is this. Marriage is fundamentally about companionship between a man and a woman. Marriage is fundamentally about companionship, about partnership as the Vaughns were describing, between a man and a woman, the whole point. And maybe 30 years ago, I didn't have to make this obvious point. We talked about it a little bit last week. But remember in Genesis 1, God created them in his image, both male and female. And then you see what? 
So they're equal. They're equal in worth. They're equal in design. They're equal in dignity. And then you see these distinct roles that God gave in Genesis chapter 2 to the man to be a benevolent leader, a servant leader, a sacrificial leader, and to the woman, a helper, to come alongside. And here you see even closer the whole point of male-female working towards marriage. This is what you see in all the scripture. Jesus backs this up in Matthew chapter 9, 19, right? He talks about male and female for the purpose of marriage. And there's something else you saw it last week. We talked about it a lot last week, but there is a need, right? There's a need here built in for Adam that he wasn't complete on his own. He was incomplete. And God showed him the animals and named them. That was work. And he looked at them and he's like, they're not like me. And then he makes Eve out of the rib, out of the side. There's companionship. There's partnership. Not over, not under, right? And then we come to verse 23. This is glorious. And then God brings her to the man. The whole time, here's what you need to remember before we get into this. Marriage is God's doing. Do you see it? He made a male and female. He made man and breathed into his nostrils. And then he made Eve out of man. And he brings her to him. Marriage is God's doing. Let me personalize it. Your marriage is God's doing. Your marriage is God's doing. And sometimes when you have a fight or sometimes when your spouse hurts you, what are you thinking? Is this really what God wanted? This person? That person? That really matters this afternoon when you get in an argument and you let the sun go down on your anger and tomorrow you really, after work, you really don't want to come home. What you really want to do is pursue your hobby for a few more hours. You don't want to come home and deal with the problem. See, marriage is God's doing. Your marriage to the person that you are with is God's doing, ultimately. But by God's design, this is fundamentally about companionship. You see it in the need of Adam. But look at verse 23. I love this. Then the man said, these are the man's first words. First words that he says are poetic, men. Poetic. I feel like an oaf. I don't know about you, but look at this. He says this, and it's in the Hebrew, it's emphatic. At last, it's like there's exclamation points. Now, look at this, not like an animal, not like any of those things, at last, bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh, someone to be a companion, someone to be by my side. This is romantic. At last, bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, they're made of the same stuff. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. She's a completer. She's a companion. Unlike all the things that he named. There's companionship here at Fundamentally, at the core of marriage is companionship. And then in verse 24, leaving and cleaving and holding fast. But look at the last part. I want to pull this out. And they shall become what? One flesh. One flesh. This is the idea of biblical oneness. And men, I know you're going to sex right here. And that's where you think. But it's more than that. It's not less than that, but it certainly is more than that. This is about companionship and relationship and spiritual life together because you remember man could talk to God. He couldn't talk to the animals and relate to the animals, and now he has Eve. And so it's a general term about relationship. It's a general term about spiritual life together, about companionship. And yes, it physically has connotations of the intimate act of sex. 
And by the way, this is seen as good. Students, listen to me. This is seen good in what context? Two people coming together in marriage in a marriage covenant, which we'll get to, in the confines of marriage. You think about your house. We don't use the fireplace in our house very much because it's 80 degrees last week. But I want you to think about the fireplace in your house. It's meant to bring warmth to your house, to enjoy. But what is all around a fireplace? Brick and mortar, because if that fire gets out of context, it gets out of place, it will destroy your house. Students, young people, listen to me. Adults in marriage, thinking about other people. Sex outside of marriage destroys the house. And so there's a context to it. Yes, oneness is about that. This is God. Oneness is about God fusing two lives into one. Two lives into one. Two schedules into one. Do you remember when you got married? You had your schedule. She had hers. Right? And you had to figure that out. That was fun. About bank accounts, two into one. How are we going to spend our money? Life. It's the fusing of two individuals into one life together. What happens next? Verse 25 says they were naked and not ashamed. They're naked and not ashamed because there's, there's no shame in marriage with sexuality. There's no shame in it. These are two committed people. They're companions. But here's the principle. It, it addresses, marriage addresses this need. It addresses the need of companionship. But I want to say it this way. You're either moving toward oneness in your marriage or you're moving it away from it. Because there's not really any neutral ground. If you've been married for any amount of time, you know there's not any neutral ground with oneness and pursuit of companionship. You have to work at it. Gravity works the other way. You know, when I was a, when I was a kid, um, on Sunday afternoons, b- before church, on Sunday morning, my dad would have me help him get the boat ready. We had our priorities straight on Sunday morning here. But on, in the summer because we lived about 20 minutes from this little lake called Inks Lake in the hill country. And so we would go to church, and we would go down to Inks Lake, and we would go skiing. And I remember as a little kid, my dad teaching me how to ski. When you, when you begin to learn how to ski, what kind of skis do you have? You have the ones that are tied together, the little skis that are tied together across. Because if you're going to learn how to ski, you've got to keep those skis parallel. And I remember my dad throwing me out of the boat and saying, keep the skis parallel, and I didn't even know what parallel meant. And those things were tied together, and I remember the first time I got up, and the big waves came from the other boat, right? And what do those skis want to do? When turbulence hits, they want to separate. And so you learn on those skis, and if you've ever been skiing, snow skiing, or water skiing, and you start there, when those skis get going the other way, you're toast. And that's the way it is with marriage. The skis have to be pointed in the same direction. Married folks, where are your skis pointed? Where are your skis pointed this morning? In what ways are you still pursuing companionship and relationship with your spouse? Whatever season of life that you're in. Because the biggest trouble that we have in marriages usually stem from a creeping separateness. That creeps in. If you talk to people who've gone through just a mess in marriage or are divorced, it's the creeping separateness. It's usually not the abrupt thing that happens. 
in your marriage, it's usually the creeping separateness where the skis get going different directions. Where after the kids go down at night, you're just on devices and never speak to one another. And you pursue work and she pursues kids or whatever it is. In what ways are you pursuing companionship? And I remember as a young married couple, it was like, I don't know how this, I don't know how people you know, I'm in a small group and there's people who have kids and I just don't get it. Like, what do you mean it takes work to pursue this? I didn't have kids yet. You think about life and the seasons of life that you go through and it becomes even more challenging. Uh, my kids, forgive me if I've told you this already, but um, some of my kids will look at old albums of vacations that we've taken. They're like, hey, mom, y'all, dad, y'all used to be cool. I'm like, yeah, before you guys came around, we could do some stuff, you know? So, there's a sense in which, as you're a young married, and you can pursue those skis going other directions too, even as a young married without kids, but as life piles on responsibility, great responsibility, kids. I'm looking at my kids. I love you. Um, as that happens, it's very easy for that creeping separateness to go different ways. As you gain more responsibility in life, whether it's at work or whether it's at home with kids or whatever it is, you've got to be intentional about pursuit. Date night, long weekend, date lunch. Can I tell you that um, the best thing for your kids is that you have a marriage that is one. You have a marriage whose skis are, they, between trials of life, they may get this way, but there's a correct. The best thing for your kids is that they see that kind of marriage. So that may mean, dads, you have to book the vacation for a few days. Or wives, maybe you need to book the vacation for your husband because he just wants to work. But you've got to pursue one another. And this is a, a, a massive challenge. And maybe you're saying, well, I, I really, I know the skis and marriage are supposed to be like this, but we don't even like each other anymore. That's a real place. And maybe it requires us to ask God to do a work in our marriage that we can't do because that's what he wants to do. And maybe it means today, before doing one of these right now, or this afternoon as you leave, maybe you take time individually. Try this one. Maybe you take time individually this afternoon to think about ways in which you, not your spouse, in which you can pursue relationship deeper and better with your spouse, and then maybe tonight after dinner, maybe tonight after the kids go down if you have kids, you say, how can we pursue this in a new way? What do we need to get those skis straightened when the junk of life hit? And maybe there's just some honest conversation, honest conversation around, I really don't like you. I really don't have love for you. And maybe that means that you need to ask God to do that work in your marriage. So consider that. Marriage fuses two lives into one. Pursue your spouse. Ladies, he's biblically your champion in an earthly sense. She's your treasure. Let's keep looking at God's good design for marriage. Marriage not only is about companionship. Here it is. One of the first steps toward marriage is this, that marriage shifts your primary responsibilities. It shifts your primary responsibilities from your parents who who are the, the primary relational component in your life if, if you're not married. So marriage should shift your primary responsibilities to this companion that God has given you. 
Remember I said this was unusual, but God stops here and he says, leave and cleave, right? Two become one, flesh. And so it shifts the primary responsibility. That's the first step. Now, you think about your parents. Sometimes people get married and they're like, hey, stay away. Don't mess with my stuff. Um, You want to honor your parents. The Bible tells you to continue to honor your parents, to love your parents. The Bible even goes as far in 1 Thessalonians to say, if you don't take care of your parents when they get older, you're worse than an unbeliever. And so we're not talking about an abandonment of parents. I'm speaking as a parent right now. Um, But what we're talking about is, is a shift in primary responsibility from your mom and dad and your family to your new family that God has given you in a spouse. And you can all think back, right? You can all think back. Maybe that's a few years ago. Maybe that's 10 years ago. And you think back about what that looked like. What that looked like, ladies, starting with your wedding, right? Where there was, is this my decision or your decision, mom? And young in marriage, the first holiday that you had after you got married, where are you spending it? How many arguments did you get into with your spouse until you came to the place as a young married couple did last week? I'm on the phone talking to this young man and we had the privilege of walking through marriage counseling with them and seeing them grow up together in youth group. And he called me and we were chatting. I'm like, hey, how's marriage? He said, man, it's good. We're working on this one thing because we've got to get on the same page in holidays and they don't even have kids yet, right? And so he's like, we finally... Stop fighting over this because we made a plan. We, not mom and dad, we made a plan. And I said, well, your kids are coming, probably, if the Lord gives you that, so you better get it right now. And so, this is a change in primary responsibility. Are there any areas of your marriage where you haven't left? This is hard. Where you haven't left emotionally, where you haven't left financially, The Bible says that we should leave our parents and go to our spouse, that they're our primary family. So your parents don't have the final say anymore. It's important to be on the same page with that. And if you have kids that are older and they're starting to get married, do you give them space, maybe like your parents gave you, to make their own decisions? And that's even hard to say because I've got some kids and I'm thinking, There's no way some knucklehead boy is going to tell my daughter that they're going to move a far away from me. Maybe some of you relate that you have older kids and now you're having to hold your tongue and let this young couple make decisions. Maybe I could give you a little bit of advice. If you're close to your mom or your dad, that's a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful thing but protect your marriage. Linda, you were saying earlier that I don't talk despairingly you know, about my husband. I wanna honor him. And one of the biggest challenges and the reasons why most premarital books say outlaws are in-laws, right? One of the most, always on the list in a premarital book is, is how do we leave well? How, how is this shift in responsibility? How do we do that? I would just give you some advice. Don't let your mom or your dad be the primary person you go to to say, hey, I'm really struggling because my spouse is sinning in this way. Don't share those things with them. Ask them advice for all kinds of things in your life, but don't let your mom or your dad be your confidant about junk in your spouse because blood is thicker than water. 
And if when anything hits in your marriage, they're gonna take your side. And what you really need is people, and your parents can do this too. Your parents can do this too. That you need people in your life if you're seeking counsel individually. You need people in life that are pointing, that care more about your marriage and that relationship than they do about pleasing you. And so our primary responsibility shifts. And more generally, could I say it this way, and I'll say it to both men and women. Is your spouse and your family your primary focus? You see, in life, we can get going all kinds of different directions. Men, is it your work or is it your family? Your wife might could tell you the answer. Ladies, is it your kids or is it your husband? What's your focus? Is your primary, see, God has given us a primary focus in marriage, our spouse and our family. And you see all kinds of marriages, well, I'm really focused on my hobby. And it's not that you can't have all those things. You need to work. You need a break. But is your primary focus on what God has given you right in front of you in your, in your marriage and your family? And you can find that out by looking at your schedule and looking at where the, where the money goes. You can find those things out. Do you treat it as your primary responsibility? So marriage changes your primary responsibility towards your companion, towards your mate, but it's also meant to do something. It's meant to be a lifelong commitment. That's what you see here, right? So leave your father and mother and hold fast. Do you see it? The word hold fast, what does yours say? Join together, cleave. That word literally means to stick like glue. And I'm not talking about Elmer's glue, I'm talking about like J.B. Well kind of glue, right? to stick like glue. It's a lifelong commitment. That's the intention of marriage, and we know brokenness happens. We know divorce happens, but the intention of God here, as well as all the way through Scripture, is that we stick like glue. Job 19.20, my bones stick to my skin and my flesh. Same word. Job 41, speaking of the Leviathan, do you remember that passage? His folds of flesh stick together. That way it's impossible to take it apart without doing major, major damage. This is the way a husband and a wife are meant to be. It's the same word that's also used in covenant language, and this is more, even more important. In covenant language in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 10 says, you shall fear the Lord and cling to him. That's covenant language with God. Chapter 11, for if you are careful to keep the commandment, hold fast to him. Covenant terminology. Deuteronomy 30, I think we have that one up here in the back. Look at Deuteronomy 30. This is right before Moses goes into the land, or Moses doesn't go in the, the people go into the land. So Moses has written Genesis through Deuteronomy, and they're about to go into the land, and he says this, loving the Lord your God, obeying his voice, and holding fast, same word, like glue, to him, for he is your life and length of days, that you may dwell in the land that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give them. This is covenant language. Marriage is a covenant between a man and a woman. It's meant to be, it's meant to be a lifelong commitment. This is what we see. And then Matthew, we see a passage in the New Testament. And the Pharisees came to him and asked him, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? So the the trap question he answered, have you not read he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, 
Marriage is male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. This is Jesus quoting this, and here's his, Jesus' commentary. And the two shall become one flesh. So, they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. This is Jesus' commentary on Genesis chapter 2. That we should now... We know in divorce that Jesus gives, I think, exceptions. We know when there is adultery, we know when there is abandonment. We know that there are cases in which there is abandonment and a severing of covenant. There ought to be the exception to the rule. There should be a pursuit, as Charles said, that we're not going to divorce. There are reasons for that, that people in the brokenness of the fall, in the brokenness of life, that people pursue that that means we have to consider something as awful as divorce because there has been abandonment and brokenness of covenant. But Jesus says that's because of the sin of the world and the hardness of our heart. Henry Ford said it this way in the days of the Model T. He said, when asked about the key to his marriage, he said, it's the same with making cars, stick to one model. You know, I used to do I used to do club, I'm a golfer, and so I used to do, um, my dad taught me how to regrip clubs so I didn't have to pay for it. And I got in college, and a few broken clubs later, I won't tell you the stories behind that, I had to figure out how to repair golf clubs. And so when I was in seminary, as a poor seminarian trying to uh, do this ministry thing, I, I worked for a guy at a golf course, and one of my jobs was repairing golf clubs. And so people would bring in clubs and say, you know, it broke because it's old. When I knew they just, it broke because they broke it over their leg because golf's a really awful sport in that way and it makes you angry. Um, but I always had to tell them a few things. I always had to tell them, listen, um, I can't promise you uh, that I can fix your club. Like they break it. Let's say it was a seven iron and there's a hosel and it's broken off and I've got to reshaft this club. I, you have to say, uh, we would have to say up front, you can send it back to Ping or Titleist or whoever, but if we're gonna do this, you need to know a couple caveats. One of, one of at that point, was I'm not sure I can get the glue to come off of this. We're gonna heat it up really hot, and the glue may come out, and the glue may not come out. It depends on how old it is and wh what kind of glue uh, was put in this club to get that shaft out so I can put a new shaft in. Something else I could tell you, it might also, I'm just gonna tell you that because I've gotta heat that metal up really, really hot for that to happen, it may damage the club and it may not look exactly right. It may have a, a black substance on it even, though it even if I can repair it. Or it may ruin the integrity of the club itself. You know, when I think about marriage, makes me ask the question, what kind of glue? What kind of glue is my marriage made of? Because when the heat comes in my marriage, what happens? Does it fracture or does it hold? And there are many in this room, most of us, there are taints of marriage. There, there's tainted, like the club is tainted in our own marriage but God can hold this marriage together. God can do what you can't do in your marriage. And even if that is broken, even if it can't be repaired by a human being, I can promise you that God can heal your heart with well that J.B. Well can't even imagine. And whether that marriage is together or not, he can heal your brokenness in and through your marriage. We need him 
That's the point. We need him. It's his doing, but we need him to help us. It's not something that we can pull off on our own. How's your glue? The glue of your marriage. Marriage is about commitment. It's about a change responsibility, but it's, and it's fundamentally about companionship, but there's an ultimate purpose of marriage as well. An ultimate purpose of marriage as well. It's about something far greater. Marriage is meant to point people to Christ. This is what we see in the New Testament. The New Testament talks about the mystery of marriage. You know, that passage that's hard to look at sometimes in Ephesians 5 that walks through the roles in marriage, walks through the husband is to sacrificially love his wife like Christ loved the church. Good luck. And then for the woman, a woman needs to submit and follow the man just like the church follows the head who is Christ. And look at verses 31 through 33. Verses 31 through 33. This is incredible. I don't know if you've picked up on this. You know, when you watch a movie, in the beginning of the movie, you think one thing is going on, and then the end, you learn that the beginning was different, actually about something else. This is what you see about marriage. Look at Ephesians chapter five. At the end of that text, with the roles of marriage that demonstrate and show Christ is the head and the church is the one who follows. It says this, verse 31, look at it. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. That's just Genesis 2, 24, isn't it? It says this, verse 32, the mystery is profound that I am saying that it refers, what's it? Marriage. Marriage refers to Christ and the church. Let each one love his wife as himself and the wife see that she represents her husband. Listen, marriage's ultimate purpose, while not revealed until later, like the end of the movie, is to show us the gospel, to show us Christ. Listen, when, when I think about this, I think, okay, well, God created marriage and then Paul is looking at this and, and Paul is looking back and saying, what well, kind of pictures marriage? No, the opposite. That's why it's a mystery, it wasn't revealed. See, marriage isn't ultimate. God is ultimate. The gospel is ultimate. But marriage, the Bible says, unfortunately, in our minds, in our hearts, that there's no giving and taking in marriage in heaven. It, it, it's temporary. It's beautiful, but it's temporary. But here, what you see is the, the ultimate purpose, while not revealed until later, is to show us the gospel. See, marriage is patterned after Christ's covenant commitment to the church. It came later... But this is the mystery, that marriage isn't really about marriage, it's about Christ and his bride. I want you to think about the gospel for a minute. What has Christ done? Who's the head of the church? What has he done? He has died on a cross to pay your sins and my sins, took those upon himself, role of the man in a marriage. Picture that. The role of the woman is to follow, or the bride, the church. You and I are the bride. He's the bridegroom, and we're meant to follow him and trust in him and believe in him. That's the picture. And even though we understand marriage in Genesis chapter 2, it was really all about Christ and his church, the gospel, not, the, not vice versa. You see, Christ is the bridegroom who comes for his bride, you and me. Men, I know that's hard. Think about it this way. Christ is the bridegroom who comes for his bride, gathered his bride. He pays for his bride with his own blood. That's the new covenant to form an unbreakable marriage, an unbreakable marriage that we get to be a part of that can't be broken. Marriage pictures that. This is the gospel. 
Well, marriage is about a change in responsibility. It's about a lifelong commitment. It's foundationally about companionship, but ultimately it points us to the gospel. Anybody ever been to Washington, D.C.? Maybe eighth grade, you went on the trip, you saw this. About, five year, uh, or about eight years ago was my first time I went. I didn't get to go on the middle school trip. I was a little bitter about that. But uh, I went to D.C., and I loved looking at the landmarks and reading about the landmarks and, and the monuments and the memorials. It was fascinating. I only had like an afternoon to go through them, and I couldn't get through them all. I wish I had a week. But I think of a monument. I think of the Washington Monument. It's the first of all the monuments or landmarks that were built in, in, in D.C. You can't miss it. It's the tallest one. It's the tallest one, actually, this tallest stone monument in the world. It's one of the tallest ones, and it is the tallest one in the world. It's the first landmark that was built in D.C., and things were built around it, and like any monument or memorial or statue, it's meant to remember someone or something, right? And obviously, it's meant to remember George Washington, the father of the country, the leader of the Revolutionary War, the first president, a man who King George III even said, who was an enemy, this is the... This is the highest character man of our age. So we remember when you go to D.C. and you see the Washington Monument that you can't miss, you remember George Washington. But I would say that you not only remember George Washington, but you also fundamentally remember the values and the tenets of this country that were built upon the war, the Revolutionary War that we fought against England. You're not just remembering George Washington you're remembering the ideals of the country that it's founded upon. Let me say it this way. Marriage is meant to put the glory of God on display. To put it on display. That's what a monument does. To put it on display through the person and work of Christ. That's what marriage is meant to do. So your takeaway today is that marriage puts the gospel on display to a lost world around you. What are we displaying and this is heavy stuff. What are we displaying? That's not a burden I want to put on you. You find that in Christ. That if you're struggling in your marriage, which we all are, let's just be honest, because we're two sinful people coming together and we need Christ. And I kept coming back this week as I thought about sharing these words with you and this challenge to you effectively in your marriage. I thought about you receiving this and going, man, I, maybe I should have skipped this week, you know, because we're talking about marriage and my marriage is not perfect. And God can continue to redeem your marriage one day at a time. And I think of um, Ephesians chapter one where he's lavished his grace upon us. So I don't want you to leave here today discouraged. I want you to leave knowing that God can continue to redeem your marriage and maybe you're divorced and maybe you've lost your spouse and maybe you're not married yet, but God is a God who redeems. He's a God who brings things right. So no matter where you're at right now, he's faithful. We sang about it. He's faithful to you. He can take all the broken pieces and he can mend your soul through the gospel. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for opportunity that you give us to come this morning and worship you, to be reminded from your word, this picture of the gospel in marriage. Lord, I pray for our marriages. I pray that you would protect them provide for them, I pray for men and women through the power of the Spirit, that they would humble themselves, that we would humble ourselves as a church. And if we need help, that we would get it. And if we need God to do a work, we would ask him to do a work in and through our marriages. 
for your glory and your great name. In Jesus' name, amen.